Hey, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. It's Brandon Laws. Hey, I wanted to let you know that we have our Beyond Compensation Total Rewards Survey launching on April 1st for Zenium. This is a survey that we run every couple of years so people can benchmark their benefits and perks against other organizations and see how they stack up. You can sign up at zenimhr.com. I'll put the link in the show notes and would love to have you participate. Okay, this conversation is with Karen Leland. She's the president of Sterling Consulting and Marketing Group. And she wrote a book called No Nonsense Time Management, 50 Tips to Hack Your Time and Get Everything Done. I like to bring in topics like this every once in a while because time management and how to run a meeting and other things like that about our productivity touches everybody. And whether you're a leader of people uh, in HR or you're just an individual contributor who likes the content of this podcast, time management is for everybody. So you're going to hear a lot of great tips from Karen in this podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you thought about the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, any of those places. And I'd love to hear from you. Have a great week and talk to you next Tuesday. Karen, it's a pleasure to have you on the Transform Your Workplace podcast. Thanks for coming on. It is my pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. So you had a book come out, I think in December. It's called No Nonsense Time Management, 50 Tips to Hack Your Time and Get Everything Done. I'm a big time management nut, and I've read a lot of books in my time on time management, and I can never quite master it. So I always love reading new ideas, and you got a lot of good ones. So we're going to dive into this. Great. I'm I'm a time management nut myself, so we share that. Well, how did you get into it? Let's I think let's start there. How did you end up writing this book? What was the genesis of it? You know, years ago when I first started working, a friend of mine was working for a company that did time management workshops, and he said they're looking for people that have acting background because they think they'd make good workshop leaders. So I went and I got trained and I was leading time management workshops all over the US. This was like 30 years ago. So it's been a subject I've always been interested in. And a number of years ago, I wrote a book. I was a management consultant. I would do time management was one of the things I taught. And then a number of years ago, I wrote a book on it. And then the same publisher came back and said, hey, how'd you like to do another book, but adding all the things that now weren't part of it last time because we didn't have the kind of online life we have now. And so the book was really a response to adding all of the video conferencing and all of the online issues in time that have been created by that. Yeah. In fact, in reading some of those tips that you have regarding like video conferencing, I'm like, this is perfect for right now because, you know, with the pandemic, a lot of people are working from home. And so this is really relevant to today's time. Agree. Well, let's start here. What do you believe people's relationship with time is? Like, I guess what comes to mind is, do they really understand where it goes or are they in denial about it? What do you think? I think people's relationship with time has really shifted over time, forgive the pun. Um, 
And I think it part of that is is the advent of technology. Part of that is the world we live in. Part of that is the internet. So I think there's a couple of things. I think people's relationship with time used to be more defined by time itself, meaning the clock. Most people went to work and they went to work nine to five, right? That was how you related to time. Time was nine to five for work. And then afterwards you had dinner and were with your family in the weekend. You know, it was structured by actual physical hours. I think obviously in the last two decades, that's that's changed tremendously. And then I think it went to be more about managing energy and people's relationship with time, quote unquote, was about managing their energy. So you could take the same hour, but you noticed one person was getting a whole bunch done in that hour and the other person was getting nothing done. Yep. So it was more a matter of their management of their energy. And I think the shift that was on its way, by the way, even before COVID, but COVID accelerated the pace of it, was a third shift in how people relate to time, which is relating to time much more now, not even so much out of energy management, but focus and attention management. So I think our relationship with time management has really been three different things. And I think the phase we're in now is a phase of attention and focus management. I love that. And I love the way you you talked about energy uh, with time management, just because how often have you heard people say, I don't have time for that? Like, let's say I gave somebody a a self-help book that I, I really encourage them to read. And they're like, no, don't got time for that. But yet, they can make time for Netflix uh, for two hours a night, probably, you know, catching up with the latest episodes of the favorite show. It's just that they don't want to make time for it, right? Oh, the time I've spent binging on Netflix during the pandemic, I could have written 10 more books. Same here. <laughs> but, you know, that's what I mean by focus and attention management is think of all the things we do that waste our time, our focus and our attention. I'm not being judgmental. I think people no, have. I do it too you know, a right to use it any way they want. But I think we're somewhat unconscious about where we spend our time and our attention and the actual, you know, unintended consequence of that on what we get done or don't get done. And I think that's a good point just about the awareness factor. So tip number four in your book is about keeping an activity log. How do you recommend people structure that? Like, if, if people really want to get a hold of their time and, and figure out where it's going, how would you structure that? What do you recommend people do with it? I mean, there's one, there's there are definitely software, you know, I know there's software that you can use that for. It's going to sound very archaic, but honestly, I have gone back to, and you're going to laugh at me. I live in New York, and so I was at uh, the Metropolitan Museum the other day, and they have these desk calendars, right? You know, they're just the little, short, yeah. small, and I bought one of them. It was all art from New York. I bought one of them, and each page is a week. And I write down my appointments that I have for every day. I write down just the time and who the appointment is with. And then all the appointments that are potential clients, I circle and I write PC by and all the appointments that are friends. I And it's a way where I look at my week and I say, where am I putting my attention? Where am I putting my time? And then when I finish an appointment, I, by the way, I write them in pencil in case they need to change. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't write them in pen. Um And then I review and I say, where am I spending my time this week? Where is my focus and attention going this week? And it's a very interesting way for me to see at a glance how I am valuing my attention. Something that you made the connection with in your book was about the the time and then your goals. So like if you're setting goals at 
at a high level in different areas of your life. It could be professional, it could be financial or personal, whatever. But then also allocating time to that. How do you like just give listeners a sense? Because you know, obviously, I want people to read the book because there's a lot of good stuff in there. But just maybe talk at a high level about how you make those connections between goals and, and the the way we spend our time. Yeah, I think that's really important because. For example, you know, because I'm a branding and marketing strategist, people are always calling me and going, I just don't have time for marketing and branding. <laughs> you know, and what I say is you have to make time for marketing. And part of that is marketing is like many of our goals, whether it's getting fit or having a relationship or writing a book, you know, many of our goals are fall into a category I would call B items, meaning they're not urgent right? They're not clawing at you with urgency like they have to get done. They're not necessarily routine and you have to do them because you don't like them and they're not urgent. But if they don't get done, like, you know, your taxes, they're not urgent, but you do have to do them or there's bad consequences, right? So there's, there's a lot of our goals fall into the B category item, which is things that are neither urgent nor are things going to fall apart if you don't do them, but they're important. But because they're not nagging at us, we don't often make the time to get them done. We don't focus on getting them done. I find a lot of marketing and branding and business development items tend to fall into that category. I find a lot of self-care items tend to fall into that. Like people, I don't have time to exercise. Self-care items don't fall into that category. So I think it's a matter of recognizing that if you're not doing something every day to move one of your most important goals forward by taking some action on it, that they are not going to happen. That's such good advice for people is to just like get a little bit better and work towards a goal every single day. Oh, I needed to hear that. For me personally, I'm sure other people listening needed to hear that as well. I was telling a friend the other day, I think it was on Saturday and I don't usually work on the weekends, but it was, it was cold in New York and I didn't want to really go outside and I think it might've even been snowing. And I was just like, I'm just staying home. And I realized that because I have this new book out, I had to do a little bit more work on reaching out to podcasters, right? Yeah. People shows. So I sat down and I just got out my lists and I reached out to podcasters. I'd been on their shows before or people that had been referred or even just cold reaching out. But you know, it's not sexy work. You send an email, you compose an email, you listen to their podcast, you get a sense of who they are, you follow up, you schedule. I mean, it's a grind. But in so it's not sexy work, but it's the kind of work that putting in five or six hours on that produced an outcome of being booked on six or seven really lovely podcasts, including your own, where it's the perfect outcome, but the work itself wasn't urgent and nothing bad was going to happen if I didn't do it. It's just my relationship with the time I took to focus on doing it is what had to be there. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And in following up with that, so you don't normally work on the weekends. What did you do, whether it was you actually scheduled the time for yourself or just made the decision? Like, how did you, like, what was the thought process around? that piece of it. Like I'm going to spend five or six hours reaching out to podcasters. It w- wasn't urgent, but it was important for, you know, getting this book launched. What what was the process there? Well, I think one of the things that I've learned to do, and I do mean I've learned to do this because I've really screwed this up in the past and found it didn't work, 
is having too many things to do associated with a goal. So you set a goal and then you write a list of the 20 things you're going to do to make that goal happen. Well, I don't know if you're like I am, but that just immediately overwhelms me and makes me feel like a deer in the headlights. Yeah. I just won't get it done. So I've learned to say, okay, this is my goal, but for this year, here's the two things I'm going to make sure happens with regards to that goal. Just as an example, I'm going to be on 50 podcasts over this year for the book. And I'm going to write, you know, five articles. I'm making that second one up. But instead of having 20 things I'm going to do, I'm going to pick two and I'm going to just be able to do those two. Because I do think people overwhelm themselves with a to-do list associated with their goals that they have no chance of achieving. It's something I call the magical thinking of the to-do list. I love that. So... With time management, that's something that I think about a lot is interruptions are just absolutely killer. You spend some time talking about it in the book. And here's an example. So I, I was reading your book and I'm sitting on my couch reading it, but I got my phone next to me. And I go, it like it dings when I get messages. My wife also comes up to me and asks me what, what we want for dinner tonight. Like there's just these interruptions that are keeping me unfocused from like finishing your book. This happens at work. This happens in our personal lives. We've got like just so many interruptions. How do we minimize interruptions so they don't suck up our time? Well, that's a really good point. And it's a more complicated answer today than ever. Think about all the people working at home. The dog comes in, the kids mm -hmm. come in, their spouse comes in, the TV's on in the background. They get hungry. They go make something to eat in the kitchen. You know, they pop up to the gym in their building. So I think I think this relationship with distractions is ever greater than it's been almost in any time in history. Some things are just a function of this kind of deep work that you have to do. So one thing is telling the truth about how long it really takes to get into something, focus, and get it done. Right. We live in this 15-minute denial, like everything can be done in 15 minutes. Well, I'll just assign 15 minutes to that. And almost nothing can be done in 15 minutes. I can't even get dressed to go to the gym in my building in 15 minutes. <laughs> By the time I get the shoes on, I change my clothes, I get in the elevator, I go get the key, I get up to the gym, I turn the Peloton on, I log in, 20 minutes has already gone by. Right. Forget doing the workout. I think we, we live in a little bit of this, this time denial around that. So I think one thing is everything takes at least twice as long as you think it does. So you have mm -hmm, to leave mm -hmm. much longer periods of time. There's also an entry time before you get into that zone. There's the zone time of working, which is the optimal focus time. And then there's the coming out of it time. So you have to really bookend that work with those entry and exit times. And I think that's why I call it the magical thinking because almost no one does that, right? Yeah. That's a really important piece. And I think then there's some structural things like being able to say to your spouse or your kids, I'm going to put this sign up or this piece of paper up or this up. And for this period of time, unless it's an emergency, I'm going to ask you not to interrupt me because I really need to focus. It could be going to another physical space and doing that, you know, shutting the door in a room and being in a physical space. It could be turning off your phone or putting your phone in another room. It could be making sure that you use one of those pieces of software where nothing can come through on your computer except for the thing you're working on. It could be setting a timer so that the timer goes off after a certain period of time and you focus on that. You know, there are structural things you can do 
But one thing is it it's not just putting everything back to back. Nine to 10, I've got this. Right. 10 to 11, I've got that. 11 to 12, I have this. You need to put in the exit and the entry time because that's what's required for real focus. I so resonate with the the exercise thing you just, you just mentioned about being in your building. It happened to me this morning. I was like, I'm going to sneak in a 30-minute Peloton ride this morning. And what happened was it, it took me five minutes to get dressed. I wanted to drink a glass of water or get prepare water, at least for my ride. And then put on my heart rate monitor. And it's like all these little things took like a minute or two a piece. And then I look at the clock and it's like an hour's gone by. And I only had 30 minutes of an actual ride. So your point about bookending the time makes so much sense because of we just underestimate how much time goes into little, little tasks. Yeah, we have magical thinking about how much time it takes and how much we can get done. It's so funny because that was my example today was the Peloton. Like I realized, okay, my Peloton workout's only 30 minutes, but I have to leave 15 minutes on the front end and 15 minutes on the back end besides the workout. It's so true. By the way, the Peloton, I, I got one about a month ago and I've been riding it pretty much every day. I love it. You know, so funny, I have friends that have been on the Peloton for two years and they've been saying to me, you got to do the Peloton. And I was like, no, I don't want to do it. And they got one in my building. And I have to say, I've really been digging the Peloton. I'm getting a bit addicted to it. <laughs> what, I, what I love about it in particular is like, so I did it yesterday. Uh, I did a 30 minute ride and I got my, I beat my PR from before it by like literally two Cajuls or whatever the the rating is, so the output was just just a hair higher. And then today I did another one, and I destroyed that same thirty minute goal. Congrats! <laughs> and it's just it's crazy because so I'm a big fan of James Clear's book Atomic Habits, and the the just the idea of getting just one percent better every day. I don't know if you read that book or understand the idea behind it, but just getting a little bit better every day, like it could go a long ways to a great future. It brings up something else, which is I'm really against multitasking, you know, where you switch your attention from one thing to another, because I don't care what people say. The research is pretty clear that you just, one, you lose focus and two, your brain IQ goes way down when you multitask. But there's a difference between multitasking and multipurposing. So I will often get on the Peloton and have calls with people while I'm on the Peloton. Mm, yep. Because it takes no focus for me to just sit there and pedal. And I can really actually focus quite well on a conversation with someone. So multipurposing is a little bit different than multitasking. But the other thing I think people are is really hurting people's relationship with their attention span is the multitasking. Yeah, multitasking. I, I think I remember hearing at one point it's like you can never do two things to a hundred percent. So if like it requires your brain, like maybe to talk to somebody, but also like you're writing an article or a blog post or something, like there's no way you could do those two things no. to a hundred percent capability. Impossible. Or not well. You can do them, but you can't give them either one of them your full attention. Now I think you can do something physical. Like I will go for a walk in Central Park and I'll talk to someone on the phone. And that actually can be quite beneficial because if I'm moving my body while I'm talking, there's a certain amount of energy. So I think you can do physical things in that. I mean, you can't go skiing and talk on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got to have a little bit more focus with skiing. Or bowling, but... <laughs> Let's shift over to delegation because I think this is a big one because I think oftentimes, especially in, in a work environment, we take on everything. We say yes to everything, but 
not everything needs your attention and, and it could be an opportunity for other people to, to get involved and to grow their skills. So a point in case you mentioned delegation is a win-win for both people. So if I decide to delegate to a colleague of mine, so on one hand, I get to save time and on from their point of view, they get to build the abilities. So how do we become better at delegating? What are some tips that you can share about this? Because I struggle with this all the time. Well, and again, I think we all have done this and we've all seen this happen. We know something's not a good use of our time, but we don't want to take the time or more specifically, I should say the effort to train someone else to do it. So we just end up doing it ourselves. And part of it is this really clear delineation between the short term of something and the long term of something. So taking the time to actually set someone else up to teach them, for them to learn, to be able to take something off our plate that really isn't a good use of our talent or time is not a short-term proposition. It's a long-term proposition because once they've got it, then we're free. We're free to be able to do something different. And again, I include myself in this. I've been a victim of this of myself. You know, this tremendous resistance. And part of it is we don't necessarily know how to teach someone else to do what it is that we do in a certain given area. So I think about this a lot. And oftentimes I will just go ahead and do something because I'm like, okay, like to email somebody or to set up time to to review or to train somebody and then you know walk them through that and then maybe have a follow-up on it or review it or something. It just takes a lot more time than just doing it myself. But your idea and thought about it's the long-term play, like how do we shift our brains to be thinking like, no, like to delegate and to train somebody is a better use of our time long-term. I have a CEO that I was doing some coaching and work with and she would call me and she'd go, you know, I'm spending all this time putting together these, she's CEO of a nonprofit, these PowerPoints for these nonprofits and it just takes hours and hours and hours. And I said, why are you doing that? You're not a graphic designer. <laughs> Get marketing involved. Well, what, but I, then I'd have to explain to someone. So I said, okay, look, do this. Figure out for me how much time you spend a week doing that. Just, just give me a rough estimate. Keep track one week. She came back the next week and she said, oh, I spent about 15 hours a week doing this. And I said, in the worst case scenario, setting up a graphic designer for how to do this with what you want and then reviewing what they did, right? Not even trusting them, but reviewing what they did. Give me your time estimate. She goes, maybe five hours a week. And I said, so look, there's a difference between five hours a week and 15 hours a week. Don't you think it's worth the five hours a week to get it set up? And of course she did. And then she invested that time and her problem was solved. But we have this weird way of thinking and I'm not even, I'm not actually sure where it comes from or what the psychological underpinnings are. I'm sure a really good therapist could tell us this, but we have this thing where we look at the short term and we think it's almost unconfrontable to put in the time or the unknownness, that's not a word, but you know, the, the lack of being known of how to transfer it stops us from doing it. The uncertainty, I guess that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, uncertainty. The uncertainty of how to communicate it to the other person or transfer it to the other person looks so hard to overcome that we just go out and do it myself. Right. Nowadays with 
especially the type of role that I have, and probably with you too, because you're in marketing and branding, is that the tools that we have available to us now, it, it makes delegation a lot easier. So like what I do, I work in software a lot. I do marketing myself. So it could be graphics design related. It could be a CRM related task, whatever it may be. I use a tool called Loom and there's other ones out there like it, but I record my screen with a task about how to do something. And then I just basically keep it in a library. So if another task like that comes up, I just reference the video and somebody can watch it and do it themselves. Great idea. It's called Loom, L-O-O-M? L-O-O-M, yeah, .com. And there's other stuff like it. I think there's like Camtasia and there's Drift Video. And- but I really like this idea of you record it so that you can show someone else how to do it. And that prevents you from having to, one, explain it over and over again. But right. two, it gives them a visual so they can go back and review it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that little idea from you. You got to. It's, it's so good. And there's just, I mean, that's a free tool as well. I mean, there's a premium version you can get. But anybody can access this now. And I think from a delegation standpoint, it's, it's beautiful. I want to shift over to meetings. Meetings are a big time suck. And I think it's, a, it's even worse when people don't feel like you're getting a lot out of the meetings. So let's say we're facilitating a meeting. It's an hour-long meeting. How do you recommend structuring it? It could be far in advance of the meeting, so agenda, stuff like that. And then actually during the meeting to make sure that people are getting enough out of it. I do think think there's a couple of things with meetings, especially since so many meetings happen on Zoom today, on video conference. Yeah. Right. And by the way, I think that's not going to change. I think even after everyone's inoculated and we're back to, you know, quote unquote, business as usual or normal, I think what people have seen is that you can have a lot of these meetings without getting everyone in a room together. I do too. I do too. I think we are forever in a hybrid model. And I think there's a couple of things. I think one, agendas are really important. I think time agendas. The meeting is going to go from 12 to 1230 and you keep that time. It's, it's a strict time commitment that you make. I think that's one thing that's really important. I think the other thing is building in, again, don't back meetings up. Right. 1230 to 1, 1 to 1.30, 1.30 to 2. I mean, I have to say, occasionally I'm guilty of this as, as well, and it just never works. Every time I do it, I go, oh, Karen, you know better than that. Yeah, it's it's the worst. You know you need decompression time or something might go, you know, go over a minute or two. I think it's not backing them up, st- stacking them on top of each other, meeting stacking. And then I think the other thing is having a very clear agenda. Here's what we're going to talk about. Here's that, you know, it's having that agenda lets people be settled into what's going to be covered. And then I do think you have to have a variety of activities within the meeting. It can't just be one person talking on Zoom for half an hour or an hour. People cannot, the, the medium doesn't allow that kind of focused attention. Yeah, with, with video conferencing, it's, it's more challenging, I think, than the in-person meeting just to get people involved because it's so easy to stay silent while other people talk. I mean, just the overlapping of audio on video is so challenging. Well, this is why you have to build in participation, meaning you say, okay, everybody, I'm going to ask you a question, and everybody just write down your answers. Great. Let me just ask a few people what you wrote down. Okay, terrific. Any questions? Great. I'm going to put you in breakout rooms. Everybody's going to have five minutes in the breakout room to discuss this. Great. All right. Here's the whiteboard. I mean, you have to really design the meeting so that there's interactivity. 
Let's shift over to to-do lists and project lists. How do you personally organize lists? Obviously, there's a million different programs. I have been very fond lately of a program called Todoist. T-O-D-O-I-S-T. Okay. It's just super easy to use. I can put things in different categories. I can move them around. I can check them every day. It gives me reminders. So I use Todoist as like my dumping ground. I put everything in there so that I don't lose anything. And then I organize it by categories. And then I manage my to-do list in a very simple way. I have a to-do list of the things I like. I have a to-do list, for example, for tomorrow of all the things that I'd like to get done tomorrow. I know I'm not going to get all those things done. So what I do is I take the two most important things that absolutely have to get done tomorrow and I highlight them or I put them at the top of the list and I make sure that no matter what else happens, I get those two things done. And then anything else that happens above and beyond that, I consider gravy. Yeah. So you're basically saying with Todoist, you dump everything in there so you just don't lose something. And then then you get into the prioritization. So like for tomorrow, if you're planning your day tomorrow, you're going to be like, okay, these two things that are in my pile of lists of or to-do lists that I need to get done. These are at the top of my list now. I'm going to get these done tomorrow. And if I don't get it done, it's kind of a failure. Well, and this is the problem is people have this experience of I failed. I didn't get everything done. And then they feel bad. And then because they feel bad, the little bit of energy is taken up by feeling bad. And it's even if it's subconscious energy, they don't realize. So they have a little less focus because they feel bad and guilty. And then it just snowballs. So I think if you give yourself a win every day, it actually helps you be more productive. Yeah. What are the four D's of to-do lists? You have this in your book, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, I think one of the big problems with not only to-do lists, but with managing your focus is people throw everything in their email inbox. It sits there, and they don't make a decision. And one of the, honestly, the really biggest problems with managing focus and time and energy is that we don't make decisions about things. And so coming to a decision about an item is a way to get it complete and moved off your list. So one of the things you can do is you can just dump it. You can just go, I've transferred this item 575 times, which tells me I'm not going to actually ever do it, or I'm certainly not going to do it anytime soon. I'm just going to dump it. I'm just going to tell the truth. I'm not doing this item. And you take it off your list. There's a huge freedom in that. That's one thing. That's one D. Another D is you realize I'm not doing this item because it's really a bad use of my time. I'm actually going to delegate this item. I'm going to take the time and the energy that it's required and I'm going to get this item delegated and you delegate it. The third D is that you do it right then and there. You just realize, you know what? This item does not take that much time. If I just did it now, instead of thinking about it 50 times, which will take me an hour to think about it 50 times. I'll just take the five minutes it takes to do it and do it right now. So there's just doing it immediately, right in the moment. And then the the fourth day is you just, you defer it. You realize I do need to do this item. It's important. I'm going to put it on my to-do list for tomorrow, for next week, for Friday, for next month. And you give it a holding place. 
the defer is where I spend a lot of my life in, but it feels like feels like procrastination. <laughs> procrastination, if you defer it over and over and over and over and over again, it's not procrastination if you give it a slot and you get it done in that slot or you, you put it off one or two more times. It's only procrastination if you've deferred it 595 times. Right. I'm exaggerating, but you get my point. So this idea of like, we're in the digital world and we're also, you know, the physical world, we've got paper, but we've also got digital files. Is there like a way in which you like to organize those pieces? So like if I've got paper all over my office and then I also got digital files all over my desktop on my computer, like what's a, what's a good way to handle that? The thing they all have in common is a filing system. So if you can keep the files on your computer in relatively clean, orderly shape, and you can keep the physical files in relatively clean, orderly shape, and if you can keep the paper in relatively clean, orderly shape, you're pretty okay. I don't understand how people function by having files all over their digital desktop. Seriously, yeah. But it's like I don't understand when I walk into someone's office and they have paper piled on their desk everywhere. I'm like, how do you function like this? How are you not reaching for a scotch, a chocolate bar, and a nap? I mean, that sounds pretty good too. <laughs> I would just want to drive myself unconscious. Yeah. You know what's interesting about the the digital stuff though? So with tools nowadays, like you got Dropbox and you know OneDrive and all these other digital tools that are just so searchable, is like you could really go without organizing files in any way because you could just literally search for it. I don't like that approach. To this. I mean, it's, it's convenient, of course, but to your point, like having stuff in a very... And by the way, I don't think it works that easily. One of the things I did over the holidays was I spent days reorganizing my Dropbox and my files because I kept looking for the same stuff over and over really? again. I don't think no. those searches are that foolproof that you can just find something for the most part. That's good to know. So it's, it, that makes the case for a good filing system. Anything in particular that you do that you find helpful? Yeah, I file things logically. So I name them something that's logical and then I put them in a logical folder just the way I would in a paper file system. And I tell the truth. There are things that I realize I don't really need to have in there and I get rid of them. For example, let's say I, I have a proposal that I write and I'm writing a proposal that's similar. I don't need 50 versions of that same proposal with just a different client's name on it if they're pretty much all the same. I can just create a template of a master proposal and use that and make the little changes here and there. Okay. So another question that's really related to this. So I, because of the technology and the storage, the capabilities of memory, I like keep everything, even if I don't even ever need it. So what do you do when it comes to, you know, files that you have no use for it anymore? Do you go through and clean it all up? Why are you keeping everything? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a psychologist, but that'd be a really good question to ask yourself. Like, are you keeping everything out of a fear of scarcity? Like, what if you throw it away? And What if I need it? Yeah, at some point. My mother would kill me if she ever heard this, but she's not going to hear it, so I think I'm safe. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was with my mother the other day. She's, you know, in her early 80s. And very, my mother's sharp as a tack. And we, her, her husband had, not my father, her, her husband had just died. I think he died maybe four or five years earlier. Yeah, sad. And I was helping her clean out some stuff in one of the, the rooms that had been his office. And I came across boxes of checks 
And they were canceled checks too. So they were checks. And I said, mom, why do you have these? Do you have them for sentimental reason? Which I could understand if they were for sentimental reason. Okay. And she said, no, I'm just worried that if I get rid of them, what if I need to look something up? And I said, mom, he's been dead for five years. The checks were already written and cashed and they're canceled. And that account's been closed for five years. Mm. What possible financial reason would you have for needing the checks? And she goes, I don't know. It might be too dangerous to throw them out. I'm like, mom, canceled. the check doesn't even exist anymore and they're canceled. What if we shred them? And she's like, oh, okay, let's do that. But you know, that's just an example of where we hold on to things you know, and that's my mother's example, but trust me, I've yeah. examples, you know, of myself. We were, we're, you know, we're holding on to things, not even for sentimental reasons, just right. because we have this fear of, well, what if I don't have it? And so I think we have to stop and really think through, do I need 30 versions of that same proposal where it's basically the same proposal, but three words are different? Yeah. Just because you have the storage room for it doesn't mean it's a good idea to keep it. I think this this is a, a point why the Marie Kondo stuff has taken off over the exactly. last couple of years. It's like, oh, does it serve any value to you or do you feel anything when you're holding it or whatever? And this is good, obviously for like home stuff. Well, but- and it's worse than that. It's not just does it hold any value or cert- or feel good. What is the opportunity cost? How much energy and attention Seriously. is it taking even if you if it's subconscious and you don't realize it? Yeah. So, so true. Okay. Email. Help me with email. How do we make our inboxes more manageable? It's the same thing. It's those four D's, you know, it's defer it, you know, delete it, delegate it, put it somewhere for a different time. I really try to bring my email inbox to zero at least once a week. That's good. Good. That doesn't mean I do everything on the email. It means I pull some things over to a to-be-handled file. It means some things get deleted. Some things get put into another file where I can find them. Some things I know they're a to-do item, but rather than use my email inbox as the to-do, I go open to-doist and I put it in as a to-do item. Then I delete it from the Amazing. email. It's hard. I mean, it takes rigor to do that. Yeah, I think for me, I was just actually talking about this with somebody last week. It's I just get so much email volume and it actually overwhelms me to the point where I'm just, I kind of just give up on (laughs) cleaning it out. It's a nightmare. But I like that approach, like you you do something with it. So you get an email, you either delete it, you file it away for for use or you put it on your to-do list. It also helps if you, for example, you change the way you're viewing it. Like first I view it by date. And then when I've gone as far as I can go with that, I view it by who it's from. Then when I've gone Mm. as far as I can go from that, then I view it by topic. Then when I've gone as far as I can go from that. So, you know, I change my view a little bit and that helps me. Like I go, I'm just going to do the A's. Okay. I'm doing it by, by alphabet and I'm just going to do the the A's, you know, so it, it helps you if you switch it around a little bit. I love that. Okay, I've got one more question for you because I I know I've taken a lot of your time and and this has been so fun. Social media is like this giant beast. Um, It's a time waster. It's also helpful for connecting with people. Like there's just, there's a lot of good and there's a lot of bad that come from it. The thing is like most people can't get away from it because they're either trying to develop their personal brands, they use it for work, or they just truly love connecting with people, especially in the times that we're in right now. But how do you get how do you how do you make sure that you're not letting social media control you and distract you from doing 
the work that we need to be doing throughout the day? Well, in some ways, I'm a bad person to ask that question. Up, and I'm going to tell you why. Because I set it up to get to, I have an editorial calendar. So That's I know good. exactly what I'm going to write about each month. I work with my social media person to get to give her the content I want her to use. She puts it together. She shows it to me. I approve it or make edits. And then she posts it out. So that part sort of rolls smoothly. Good. I don't spend a lot of time looking at social media, reading social media, going through social media. I spend very little time doing that because it is such a gigantic time suck that I just don't have the bandwidth for that. So I'm not someone that spends a lot of, I don't go down the rabbit hole of social media very often. Good. Well, and you were talking about energy earlier too. I think it's a tremendous energy depleter. It's a huge suck of energy for people. So I've pretty much set it up so that my social in terms of what I post is pretty much handled um, in the most streamlined way possible. Like I batch my videos. I make two to three minute videos and one goes out a week. <laughs> Here's the multi-purposing part, right? If I have to be on a Zoom call or if I have to do a webinar, afterwards I set aside time to record videos because I've already done my hair and makeup. So I figure since yeah. it's already done and the lighting's already done, I may as well just make some videos. So I get a lot of them done by batching them. And then they're just there. And then I have my social person is takes them and she gets them ready to roll out. So I have that process in terms of creating content very, very streamlined. In terms of looking at, at social, I'll spend a little bit of time every night after the workday. I never take time from my workday to look at social. Good. I just don't think that other people are taking that approach <laughs> nowadays. For employers, I would worry about that. Like, are you actually being productive and working or are you checking Facebook a thousand times a day? Oh, yeah. I can tell you, I know the answer to that. People are spending a lot of time checking their social. Yeah. I think that's one of the things I worry about with this work from home stuff. I also don't like the approach of like, oh, we're going to monitor everything you're doing as, you know, as an employer. Which is why I said I think we're, we're, we're shifting away from the physical measurement of time for people in getting their jobs done to even the measurement of the energy they expend to the actual focus and the results produced. Because let's say you're an employer and you know the person has to get these 10 things done this week. Do you really care if they get those things done at two in the morning or five in the afternoon? You don't. Nope. As long as they get them done with the quality that you need them done and they get them done within the time frame, it shouldn't make any difference to you as the employer, the way in which or the schedule with which they get those done. Beautifully said. I love it. Karen, this has been such a fun discussion. I could have talked to you a lot longer about all this, but I encourage people to go get your book, No Nonsense Time Management, 50 Tips to Hack Your Time and Get Everything Done. Karen, where can people learn more about you, anything you're up to? They can go to karenleland.com, K-A-R-E-N, and then my last name, Leland, L-E-L-L. And.com. They can also go to sterlingmarketinggroup.com, same site. And then I have a YouTube channel, Karen Leland, and any of those places they can find out about me. Karen Tiber Leland, thank you so much for coming on. This has been so fun. Brandon, thanks. And thanks for the great questions. I really enjoyed it. 